This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. So hello, welcome to this Research in Practice podcast. I'm Devrick Williams, I'm the Head of Learning here at Research in Practice. This podcast will be looking at developing practice resources around discriminatory abuse. Today I'm talking with Carl Mason, who's a lecturer in social work at Royal Holloway University of London. Carl, can you introduce yourself, please? Hello, everybody. Hello, Dubrig. Um, yes, thank you. My name's Carl Mason, and I, like like you've said, I'm a lecturer in social work, and I've been doing some work over the last um, year and a half um, with some colleagues in the Local Government Association and um, with some of your colleagues, Dubrig, at Research and Practice in relation to discriminatory abuse. Um, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of that knowledge today with everybody listening. Brilliant. Thanks, Carl. So today we're going to be looking at what discriminatory abuse is and its policy basis. And we're going to be thinking critically about how how common discriminatory abuse is and consider official statistics and wider research findings. We're going to be looking at recognising situations where discriminatory abuse might apply, as well as how discriminatory abuse has arisen in safeguarding adult reviews. And we're also going to be considering how we might develop our practice in relation to discriminatory abuse. we're going to be covering a lot and um, really looking forward to it. Before we delve into the podcast then, Carl, is there anything important for us to think about at the start of this? Yeah, I think that it's um, it's important to uh, remember that this podcast is, is about a very serious uh, topic. It's about safeguarding adults uh, and it's about how adults may be targeted as a result of their protected characteristics. And so as a result, um, I'm aware that people will be listening to the podcast, maybe in different sorts of scenarios. Some people might be at home with other people around. Some people might be in the office. Some people might be on public transport. But it's just important to remember that there there, there will be some sensitive topics um, discussed. We're going to talk about some serious case reviews or safeguarding adult reviews. Talking about safeguarding adults reviews um, always involves telling um, very sensitive stories and stories that are very tragic, really, that, that that where people have been harmed. Um, and of course, you know, we're engaging with um, issues such as ageism and racism and homophobia and transphobia and Islamophobia and, and other forms of discrimination. And obviously, um, it's important to just take care of ourselves while we're listening to this podcast and while we're doing this work more generally. So I think, yeah, that's 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 an important thing to say just in terms of self-care at the start. So, Carl, to start off with then, we're just going to start with thinking about what discriminatory abuse is. Um, how would you explain discriminatory abuse to practitioners listening who may or may not be familiar with it? Uh, discriminatory abuse is a category of abuse in safeguarding adults, which has been around in policy since really the the, the No Secrets guidance uh, document from 2000. And it's been retained in the Care and Support Statutory Guidance, which supports the CARE Act. Um, so. The Care and Support Statutory Guidance uh, defines discriminatory abuse as forms of harassment, slurs or similar treatment because of race, gender and gender identity, age, disability, sexual orientation and religion. So in other words, it's a category of abuse in safeguarding adults policy, and it refers to various forms of abuse that are ultimately motivated by 
prejudice or bias, and that includes um, prejudice or bias that's targeted in relation to those who have protected characteristics. And in terms of how I would explain it um, beyond the statutory definition, I suppose it can be helpful to illustrate this with examples from safeguarding adults reviews or what were previously called serious case reviews. There are two fairly high profile serious case reviews which predate the CARE Act, but which are still cited um, regularly in relation to really illustrating and getting to the nub of what discriminatory abuse is. So I might just tell people a little bit about these two serious case reviews just at the outset. The first of these was uh, Fiona Pilkington and her daughter, Francesca Hardwick. So they lived in Leicestershire and over a period of 10 years, they experienced severe harassment by local youths. Sadly, Fiona Pilkington ended her own life and that of her 18-year-old daughter, Francesca Hardwick, who um, had learning disabilities. And the Serious Case Review noted that they had been targeted as a result of Francesca's learning disability in quite a severe way, but that the multi-agency network had failed to identify this beyond sort of uh, episodes of antisocial behaviour and had failed to, to notice the patterns of discriminatory behaviour that was that was ongoing for over for, for a decade. So obviously that's one um, extremely tragic case. And, and um, another that people might be familiar with is Stephen Hoskin. Now, Stephen Hoskin, many people will be aware, was a 39-year-old man with learning disabilities. Stephen uh, had, had moved to semi-independent um, accommodation away from his hometown in Cornwall when he was befriended by a local gang. And he was befriended by this gang. They, they, they moved into his flat they began to take advantage of him as a result of his learning disabilities. And unfortunately, and, and very tragically again, Stephen was murdered by this group of people. And again, the Serious Case Review noted that, that this had happened as a result of being targeted um, because of his learning disability. And that unfortunately, the multidisciplinary network had not acted when he had made numerous calls to health and social care services, to housing, to the police. Um, so there were issues of communication and information sharing in this situation. So these are two um, sort of fairly high profile serious case reviews that people may have heard of, um, but they really illustrate um, the ways in which very tragic outcomes can occur um, and the ways in which people can be targeted as a result of their protected characteristics. Thanks, guys. Really helpful to understand and to um, hear those examples. Um, how do you think discriminatory abuse operates alongside other safeguarding adults categories? Well, that's a really, really good question, Tofrik. I think um, uh, one of the issues with discriminatory abuse is that um, it doesn't operate on its own. People can be targeted as a result of their protected characteristics, but oftentimes that targeting is implemented through, say, physical abuse or financial abuse or, say, emotional abuse. And so racist motivations can be carried out through an assault, for example, or through emotional abuse or bullying, for example, and other forms of harassment. So because it's implemented through other categories of abuse, like physical abuse, sometimes it can be hard to recognise it 
as abuse in its own right, because the more obvious form of abuse may be the the mode through which it's implemented. So racist abuse, which is implemented through physical abuse, um, it might be easier to identify the assault, for example, and it might be harder to to identify the less recognisable aspects of, of this because discriminatory um, attitudes can be hidden. Uh, I think as well as that, um, there can be overlaps with, say, hate crime or mate crime. And it's useful just to think about what those things are. So MenCap um, talk about mate crime as being something that happens when someone says that they're your friend, um, but they end up taking advantage of you. Um, like, for example, taking financial advantage of you or or some of those things that happened to Stephen Hoskin where his flat was taken over and he was exploited by people who said they were they were his friend. And um, whereas hate crime is something that happens where somebody um targets you because of who you are and because of the the characteristics, the protected characteristics that you have. For example, race or sexuality or disability or um or age. Um I, I say protected characteristics, but it doesn't necessarily have to follow that we're talking about the characteristics listed in the Equality Act. It could be, for example, um, that somebody's targeted as, as a result of other things like um, like homelessness. Um, and yeah, I suppose it can be helpful just to think back to um, Stephen Hoskin and, and Fiona Pilkington. So both were targeted as a result of the characteristics um, that, that Stephen Hoskin had and that Fiona Pilkington's daughter, Francesca Hardwick, had. So, yeah, th those are some of the ways in which discriminatory abuse can operate alongside other categories. And, and that has implications really for how, how it's reported, which we might get to a little bit later in the in the podcast. Thanks, Carl. So it sounds like it could be a commonly used category as it's quite flexible and works alongside those other categories. Yes, because when you think about it, um, every adult, I think, that comes under the safeguarding adults umbrella will have care and support needs. And oftentimes these will be as a result of age or disability. Um, and both age and disability are protected characteristics. And if somebody is targeted as a result of age or disability, then you could say that that is an example of discriminatory abuse. And of course, older people and people with disabilities and people who are um, experiencing mental distress, they often have other characteristics, multiple characteristics um, in relation to their identities, whether that's in relation to race or sexuality or gender identity or religion. So you could think that it would be quite a commonly used category, but you would be wrong, unfortunately. So the, the reporting statistics on discriminatory abuse are extremely low. Last year, less than 1% of uh, Section 42 safeguarding inquiries were linked to discriminatory abuse. And although this has increased very slightly um, in 2021-22, um, it's only increased to 1.5% of Section 42 inquiries linked to discriminatory abuse. So that is extremely low. If we look then at safeguarding adult reviews, there was a really good piece of work done. Um, in fact, it was the first national analysis of safeguarding adult reviews. Um, and it was done by um, Michael Preston Shute and A.D. Cooper and a range of other people. And they analysed all of the safeguarding adult reviews between 2017 and 2019. And they found that only two of the 399 safeguarding adult reviews done in that period were linked explicitly to discriminatory abuse. 
So the reporting both in the safeguarding inquiry stats and in uh, safeguarding adults reviews, it's really quite low. You'll find that there are some contradictions here. So if you look at rates of reported disability hate crime, which is a criminal offence that would be reported to the police, but it has a lot of crossover with discriminatory abuse. We'll note that, in fact, um, so last year there were um, 9,208 police recorded disability hate crimes, and um, that was in 2020, 2021. And that was a 9% increase on the year before. But in fact, that's now increased from 9,208 to 14,242 in 2021-22. That's a 43% increase in one year. So this is really quite phenomenal that people who are targeted as a result of uh, disability and they report this as a, as a hate crime to the police, that that's increasing uh, dramatically. But our, our, our discriminatory abuse statistics in, in safeguarding adults remain very low and very static. The, the reporting, I guess, on discriminatory abuse is unlikely to be accurate. Unlike hate crime, which is mainly self-reported to the police, discriminatory abuse is based on practitioners recording the categories of abuse while they undertake their, their safeguarding duties, their Section 42 inquiries. So I guess, you know, what we end up with is, is perhaps not the full picture. And it's likely that um, the, the category of discriminatory abuse is either hiding behind um, other other manifestations of abuse or or not being reported for for possibly some some other reasons. That's fascinating to hear. Can you talk us through any interesting research findings around that? Certainly. Um, so myself and um, some colleagues from the local government association and um, some colleagues from research and practice undertook a literature review um, earlier on this year. It was published in the Journal of Adult Protection. And so we found a fair few um, pieces of research that might help to understand why reporting might be low. So one interesting piece of work was done by Sue Westwood, who um, was particularly interested in uh, discrimination and older LGBTQ plus people. Um, and she talked about how discrimination links with protected characteristics. And as a result, people might be afraid of stigmatization. It might be embarrassing or people might feel, I guess, feelings of shame. And th th these things might prevent people from speaking up or asking to speak to a professional about um, discrimination. So it could be it, it could be embarrassing to speak to a professional, perhaps as a result of homophobia or transphobia. You might not trust the professional. So these sorts of things are talked through in Westwood's research. And there was another interesting piece of research done about a decade ago um, by Sin. And Sin talks about um, just the commonplace nature of discrimination in society. So some people experience discrimination on an everyday basis. And we know a little bit more about that um, with the coverage from the Me Too um, social movement and the Black Lives Matter social movement, where everyday sexism and everyday racism have been sort of um, uh, uh, detailed a little bit more, brought to brought brought to more prominence um, in the in the public imagination. So I, I suppose 
as a result of the everyday nature of, of some forms of abuse. These experiences can be normalized. It can be difficult to identify these everyday experiences as abusive and that that could lead to, to low reporting. Sarah Carr and colleagues talk about discrimination, including slurs and harassment, which are based on protected characteristics. Um, but there can be broader societal issues that make discriminatory abuse more likely to happen um, because of widening social inequalities. And um, for example, uh, inadequate housing, experiences of poverty. Um, and those things aren't really captured in the statutory definition of uh, discriminatory abuse, because the statutory definition, as I said, really focuses on um, slurs and harassment, but doesn't really draw in on, on the macro level um, inequalities in society that people might be experiencing. So it can be hard to sort of pinpoint these sorts of experiences down to discriminatory abuse. Thanks, Carl. It's really helpful to understand those social contexts. Why might it be important that reporting is so low, do you think? Well, if we have low statistics, but we know that um, there is rising levels of, of disability hate crime, for example, it may be that the that this sort of abuse isn't being identified within safeguarding practice, but is instead being channeled through um, criminal justice routes. Um, it is good that people are are getting are 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 reporting through criminal justice routes, but this might not lead to some of the benefits of of, of safeguarding work with its emphasis on well-being and uh, restoration. I suppose the other issue might be that this this these forms of abuse are being dealt with under safeguarding, but they're being labeled as physical abuse or emotional abuse rather than um naming the discriminatory dynamics that motivate that physical abuse. So I described racist abuse that that, that, that is implemented through, say, an assault. Um, so maybe the assault is being foregrounded and the racist abuse isn't being sort of named in the categorization. So categories, I suppose, you know, might or might not be helpful. Um, but because discriminatory abuse as a category foregrounds the protected characteristics um, and aspects of identity that can be marginalised or othered and therefore targeted, if discriminatory dynamics are sort of hiding in behind more obvious modes of abuse like physical abuse or financial abuse, then it might be that people's experiences of discrimination are not being addressed. So issues like racism or ageism or homophobia or transphobia or biphobia, these things might not be discussed as part of the safeguarding action or, or inquiry. So obviously this then can have an impact on, on people. So I guess it's important to think this through properly. Um, and if we think about, say, you know, uh, the Stephen Hoskin uh, situation, if we only thought about his situation as being um, physical abuse, um, financial abuse, and we missed out on the fact that he was targeted because of his learning disability, that would miss out on quite a lot of fairly important um, detail. And people may find it helpful to, 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 to be able to articulate some of that. If we don't support people to talk about um, the impact that um, their protected characteristics like race or sexuality being targeted, um, then people may feel as though 
the cause for the abuse hasn't been addressed and people may feel that, you know, the safeguarding inquiry or the safeguarding process hasn't helped them to improve their their situation um, and it might just leave certain things like racism or, or homophobia, these things sort of just stay under the surface and people aren't sort of helped to to achieve restoration or recovery as a result of the safeguarding process, which is what we want from good safeguarding practice. So we've discussed two of the serious case reviews which involve discriminatory abuse. Can you tell me more about what other examples might look like outside of them? So I think um, I've also described just the everyday nature of discriminatory abuse. And um, I think it is important to just look at that a little bit more because sometimes, um, certainly in the Fiona Pilkington case, uh, it was suggested that herself and her daughter's experiences of being targeted because of her daughter's uh, learning disability, that this was just missed because it was sort of subsumed into just general antisocial behaviour. So it's really important to just bear in mind that where people are experiencing these things on a regular basis, that it's important to just separate out that this is a safeguarding issue. And this occurred in another Safeguarding Adults review where uh, X in Brighton and Hove, uh, their everyday experiences of transphobia and also um, stigma in relation to their homelessness was really woven into their experience um, uh, on a day to day basis to, to such an extent that it was hard to separate out uh, acts of discrimination. So I think it is important to just remember that um, discriminatory abuse can happen on quite an everyday basis. But there are other examples, for example, being targeted on public transport or being targeted on the street by people in the community. Um, and that can lead to people feeling more, more isolated and, and feeling sort of that they can't um, maybe engage with their community, feeling, feeling worried about going out. And people being targeted, for example, via name calling or harassment in neighborhood contexts. Uh, this can occur and obviously this can li link to more extreme forms of exploitation and abuse. For example, cuckooing where somebody's flat is taken over, like in the Stephen Hoskin case. I think much of the research refers to people who have learning disabilities or older people or um, people who are experiencing mental distress. but. Um, the definition includes discrimination that's racist or homophobic or transphobic, as well as those who are targeted because of their religious affiliation. And I think this is this is under research. So it's important to just remember that these things um, can be happening as well um, and that people have multiple identities, really. Are there examples of how different protected characteristics might be targeted, perhaps in other safeguarding adult reviews? There are no safeguarding adult reviews that I found in relation to Islamophobia or um, anti-Semitism, although we do know that these things are, you know, very, you know, common in society. So there are there are no, no examples of that, but there are um, there are some examples in relation to racism. Um, for example, in Manchester, the, the, the case of Olia and her baby, whose experience of racism were not really acknowledged in the in the work that, that that was being done with Alia and her and her baby. There are other examples of um, say homophobia or biphobia um, that are 
not really addressed because of, for example, um, practitioner or institutional biases like in the Safeguarding Adult Review involving N from Bexley or um, the Learning Review involving Peter Farker from um, the Diocese of Oxfordshire. So there are there are examples of how different protected characteristics might be targeted, but um, the research is still catching up with with that and there is there is room for more research on on this area. So what can practitioners do to develop their work with people experiencing discriminatory abuse? What would you say is the starting point? Well, I think the starting point really is to think about two things. Um, first of all, transferable skills. So thinking about practitioners really just building their confidence because practitioners have lots of skills in safeguarding work. Um, and it's really about thinking about how you can bring that expertise to bear in this uh, safeguarding work. And, and I suppose the other starting point that I would say would be about identification. So um, how do you identify if um, a person who's participating in a safeguarding inquiry has protected characteristics? And some of these uh, protected characteristics, of course, could be visible, but others might be hidden, like religion or um, some forms of disability or sexual orientation. Um, they can be hidden or they can be unknown. So just bearing in mind that you may be working with somebody who has protected characteristics, for example, um, an older black person um, or somebody from an, another minoritized uh, ethnic background or um, maybe uh, a gay woman who also has disabilities. So an intersectional approach um, is important and one that appreciates um, the interaction between these characteristics. That, that's, that's clearly essential. So how can these transferable skills be brought to bear when discriminatory abuse is identified? I think that's a good question. So I suppose, like I said, we do we do have lots of skills from um, our other from our broader safeguarding experience. And when we're when we're doing safeguarding work with somebody who has protected characteristics, it's pretty sensitive work. Um, and um, I guess we need to 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 bear that in mind that we need to build build relationships and sensitively identify with the person who's experiencing the abuse what significance those protected characteristics might have in relation to maybe the motivation for abuse or or how the abuse has played out or or indeed what future risk might look like in relation to the abuse um or it could be barriers to safety or recovery or living leading a more fulfilled life i guess there are differences related to protected characteristics and that might mean that adverse experiences are more difficult to talk about or identify because of say shame or stigma but it could also be because of language barriers or maybe not trusting statutory services as well as a result i think it's important for practitioners to think about you know, are there um, specialist services or culturally specific services existing within your local voluntary sector? Um, and can you sort of proactively identify um, what those services might be um, when you're working with people or when you're preparing for work with people? And of course, it's important to think about whether these services offer channels for advocacy um, and peer support um, and take a community work model and are able to sort of offer people person-centered approaches um, that might be more, more accessible to, to them than, than a statutory response might be.
I think the other thing is that when you're beginning this work, it's taking an inclusive approach to how discrimination might play out. So people might experience very overt uh, examples of discrimination like name calling that's racist or um, bullying that is maybe um, homophobic or ageist. Um, and so uh, sometimes discriminatory abuse can play out in that more overt or obvious way and it could be easier to put your finger on it. But I would say that people should just bear in mind some of the more subtle dynamics that can happen with discriminatory abuse. So it could even be as subtle, I suppose, as things like not having culturally appropriate meals uh, in formal care settings. Um, and that can indicate, I suppose, a lack of care about um, who the person is and what the person's needs are based on their, say, ethnicity or religion or cultural practice or ideological beliefs. And that in turn can be underpinned by institutional racism. And I think also just thinking about how discrimination can be nested within broader social contexts like poor neighbourhood safety or poor housing or uh, depleted community environments where community services and preventative services have maybe um, needs to shut down because of lack of funding um, or, or poverty in, in, in communities. And I think this can mean that people with protected characteristics don't feel able to participate um, fully or to access their community safely. So those are some of the things I would say um, that, that people can begin to think about when they're beginning to prepare for um, work in this area. Are there specific communication skills that can help? I think there are. I think it's important to think about how uh, we discuss protected characteristics and remembering that this can be extremely sensitive for people and quite difficult to talk about. And we've mentioned the idea of stigma and shame earlier on. Doing this work, um, I suppose it requires us to engage with empathy, showing an understanding about how this might be difficult to talk about and nesting this work within sort of the relationships that we build that are, you know, we've built rapport, we've built supportive relationships and that supports this work. It's hard to do this work without those relationships in place. But I guess people might want to um, be thinking about asking things about how the person experiences discrimination. It could be that you want to offer hints uh, to, to the person to see whether they, they feel that this is relevant. So you could think about saying something like people might be targeted by others because they're seen as different. And that could possibly be because of race or sexuality or age or disability. And you could ask whether you think the person would see that as linking with their own experience and whether they feel that that had ever happened to them. Um, and, and if if so, could could they tell you more about this? So I think that that can just sort of help to introduce the idea that um, protected characteristics might be involved in an experience of abuse or neglect. I think you could also think about asking whether the person has ever felt unsafe because of their protected characteristics, whether that's um, race or sexuality or age or disability or religion um, or other protected characteristics. And you could ask the person to tell you about a time when 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 they felt unsafe if 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 they say yes. And you could ask whether or not they think that that could be true on this occasion. If they if they say that that might have happened, 
and then you could say something like you've told me that you believe that your protected characteristics um, so you might not use the word protected characteristics but you you've told me that you believe that um, ageism might have motivated the abuse that you experienced does this affect your ability to feel safe and to participate in your community um, or you know um to, to does it affect how you meet your needs on a on a more general basis um and can you tell me about a time when you felt this way or do you think that might still be happening um or do you think that this might happen in the future and i think that can sort of help to draw out some of those issues and ultimately practitioners are are hopefully using a making safeguarding personal approach and this emphasizes um a person-led approach so um this can sort of just put the person in charge of the process and help help the person to talk in a with you about what's important to them so um this should really provide the the, the forum for a, a more culturally informed uh, a more affirmative uh, approach to safeguarding and one that's sort of respectful of people's protected characteristics Given the issues involved then, can you talk to us about why reflective practice is important too? Well, I think that reflective practice is really important um, here. And I think being able to talk about this in supervision is important uh, as well. And the reason why I think reflective practice is particularly important when working with discriminatory abuse, it's important when working with all safeguarding adults work um, uh, or all social work really, but I think it's particularly relevant here. And that's because discriminatory abuse requires us to think about power. It requires us to think about rights. It requires us to think about inclusion. And so it links really uh, closely to ethics and values. And when we reflect on our practice in discriminatory abuse, it's, it's I suppose it involves professional curiosity um, and a willingness to, to challenge some of the familiar ways of working in safeguarding adults. It might involve thinking through or, or talking about questions like, well, how do we identify and work with people who have protected characteristics in the first place so that discriminatory acts of abuse are explicitly addressed in our safeguarding practice and not hidden in behind some of those um, or obscured by some of those other factors that we talked about earlier on. And I suppose how can we use uh, curiosity to and hypotheses perhaps to uncover um, and consider the possibility that discrimination could be motivating this safeguarding issue that we're working with. So people may not tell you that they feel as though they've been targeted, um, but you are aware that, that there is abuse or neglect. So it's important to be curious about whether or not maybe their protected characteristic could be um, have, have been targeted and to, to sort of sensitively explore that. And I suppose we need to think about what support we need to improve our practice, which includes um, our knowledge of just the daily experience and the everyday experiences of discrimination by people from um, different backgrounds, uh, including people who identify as LGBTQ+, people who are from Black, Asian, other minoritized ethnic communities or other groups, I guess. And this, like again, it's it's very sensitive work. So we need to think about how we do that. 
ultimately, I suppose our own values and biases really, really are influential on our work. And we may not be aware of some of those values and biases. So talking to a supervisor or engaging group supervision, that can really help us to sort of become more sensitized to the fact that we we enter into this work with values um, and 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 we may have biases that we're not aware of and that bringing those to the surface can be helpful and it can be helpful to to, to help us think about how our own practice might actually exclude people at times um, unintentionally and it might um, you know sometimes practice can reinforce stereotypes um, so I think it's important to use reflective practice in those ways uh, in order to in order to effectively support people who are experiencing discriminatory abuse. Thanks so much, Carl. It's really, really helpful. And um, we'll share the blog that you wrote for research and practice earlier in the year. Um, that's that's a great blog post. In terms of local resources, what would you suggest, Carl? Well, I think that people could um, first of all have a look to see what's available in your area um, for people from different communities or with different protected characteristics. Those will be dependent on local funding and, and local populations, I guess. Um, but it is important to be proactively ready for this work and it can form part of, you know, people's preparation for practice and, and induction, hopefully. Um, but there are some good more national resources. So Dufferk, maybe you maybe you can also link to the mentalhealth.org.uk um, and their resources that includes a range of su support services um, that support people from black, Asian and minoritized ethnic communities with their mental health across the country. Um, or you could also refer to the Age UK uh, uh, resources. Um, and again, there's a link that maybe Dufferk you can share. Um, and this includes um, information and advice and some specialist support services for older people who are LGBTQ+. And there's also the disabilityrightsuk.org resources on disability hate crime and some of the services that can help with this. So th those are some of the, the, the resources that might be useful. Thanks so much for your time today, Carl. It's been so interesting. I've learned so much through the course of this podcast. Thanks so much, Dovrig. It's a pleasure talking about it and I hope people find it useful. Thank you to you all for listening as well. We'd be really interested to hear your feedback from this podcast and what would be helpful moving forwards. Thanks for listening to this Research in Practice podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on Twitter Tweet us at ResearchIP.